We are looking at the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, last of the prophets. And as if you've got your notes, uh, you see that we don't know much. In fact, we know nothing about Malachi. In fact, we don't even know for sure that's his name because the, the name Malachi in Hebrew literally means my messenger. And so some people speculate that that was a, a title instead of a name. Sort of like when we read Ecclesiastes, it's written by the preacher and it never gives a name. I, I don't agree with that. In fact, most scholars don't. That's a minority view. Most of us believe that Malachi was the name of the prophet. Either way, uh, we lived in Israel in the days after the return from exile. I've got a little timeline there for you to, th to think about some of the events around that time and what time we're thinking about. So he was probably in the same time frame as Nehemiah when Nehemiah came back to or came to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Uh, so think about what's going on there. We, we think about the return from exile. If you know, if you're a big Old Testament buff, if you've read the Old Testament, uh, we think about the, them after 70 years in exile in Babylon coming home to the land and, and such a triumphant thing. And yet that was the start of a lot of hardship because they moved back to a nation with nothing. And sure, they were given some resources by the king of Persia, but not a lot. And they were on their own. And to live in the ancient world in a city without walls was very dangerous. It's like living in a city today with no police force, without doors, uh, locks on your doors. You know, you were, you were very uh, vulnerable. And think about it. They moved back in, in 538 B.C., and it wasn't until almost 100 years later that the walls of Jerusalem were built. And so that was a, a long, difficult time. For a lot of that time, they had severe opposition too. the Samaritans. You, you want to know where the, the animosity between Jews and Samaritans comes from. Read the book of Nehemiah sometime. Those were the folks that were in the land already, and they didn't like these pure-blooded Jews coming back and rebuilding things in Jerusalem. And so there was animosity there. There was probably violence. There was definitely threats. So they had a difficult time for a good while there. But by the time Malachi is writing, the people are relatively safe. The walls have been built. Uh, their captors uh, had sent them home. Their human enemies had been basically driven out or had been put in their place because at every turn, the Persians were on the side of the Jews. But now, now they faced opposition from inside themselves. The, the bigger enemies, it's... Ironically, it's easier for us to live for Christ when we're having a difficult time in our external circumstances. When everything's going fine, relatively speaking, then we get lax. Then things like laziness and mediocrity and hypocrisy and self-righteousness come to the surface. And that's what Malachi is here to, uh, to address. Uh, think about it. They're living in a time when there's no miracles like we read about in the book of Exodus or the time of Elijah. And so it was very easy uh, in those days, I'm sure, for the people to just sort of forget about God or, or make him just an afterthought, just something they did on the Sabbath day. Uh, by the way, just a side note, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard more sermons out of Malachi than all the rest of the, <laughs> the minor prophets put together. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, because of a passage in Malachi about tithing which we'll get to, but also because Malachi reads more like one of Paul's letters than any, any of the rest of the books in the Old Testament. It's Malachi's a preacher, and, and you can tell by how he writes. So 
Uh, we're going to start with Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. So right off the bat, I mean, the book of Malachi is, is the prophet speaking to the people and addressing them on, here's the problems that I have with you. Here's the problems that God has sent me to address. And right off the top, he starts addressing their spiritual leaders. Don't you think, I hate to say this, but don't you think that if, if the Lord sent a prophet to America right now, he'd talk to the church first, and who would he address first? The leaders. He'd, he'd talk to people like me. He'd say, why aren't you doing this? Why are you doing that? And that's what happened in Malachi's day. What was the problem he had with the priests? He said, he says, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. Though you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So you see the argument he's making, right? The priests were making the offerings that were required by the law, but they were using the worst of the animals. They were saving the good stuff for themselves. So remember, the, the job of the people was to tie 10% of what they made, their flocks, their herds, their crops. And that was to feed the priests and the Levites because the priests and Levites weren't allowed to have land. Uh, so they took it. But they were supposed to use that to offer the daily sacrifices, morning and evening. And so the priests were saying, okay, let's sacrifice that one because he's, he's, he's a runt. He's not going to make it. Let's sacrifice that one because, you know, he's, he looks kind of sick. And that's not what God wants. The point that Malachi makes is if the governor was coming over to your house for dinner, would you serve that to him? Or would you serve him the best thing you had because you want to make a good impression? I remember reading a story years ago uh, about the Butterball Turkey Hotline. Have I told you this story? So Butterball, uh, I don't know, they may still do this. They used to have an 800 number in case you had a, a Thanksgiving emergency. You know, something happened, you didn't know what to do. And so in the days before Thanksgiving, a woman called the, the hotline and she said, listen, I was, I was uh, defrosting my freezer and... I found this big, I found a turkey encased in ice in the very, very bottom. And I was just wondering, is it okay to eat that? And they said, well, how long has it been there? She said, well, I've had that freezer for over 10 years and I've never defrosted it till now. So it could be 10 years old. And the, the person on the hotline said, well, ma'am, um, it, it won't hurt you, but it's probably, it's probably freezer burned. So it probably won't taste very good. And the woman said, oh, okay, I guess I'll give it to my church then. <laughs> Which is how we think, right? I, I knew a couple. In fact, the woman was uh, church secretary at a church I pastored. And they lived, they had bought a house that had once been a church parsonage. Not of that church, but a, a different church. Uh, they, and she told me, never, ever, ever buy a church parsonage. And I said, why not? She said, because nothing works in the house. Because churches, they, they go cheap on their parsonage. Y'all know what a parsonage is? Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, she said, what they do is, uh, you know, the, the wiring's off, so they send Deacon Jones over to fix it. They don't call an electrician. You know, the plumbing's messed up, they call Deacon Smith. You know, if, if they want to put in some new cabinets, well, you know, 
Deacon Williams, he can do that work. And none of those people would do that kind of work themselves in their own home. They'd hire it out. But in the church, they, they do it on the cheap. And she said, so you go to this house and, and none of the doors close all the way and the drawers don't fit and the wirings, you know, they had an electrician come out and say, who did this? Um, so all of that to say, why do we give God our leftovers? Why do we, we look at God and we say, okay, this is good enough. This is all right. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll come to worship when it's convenient. I'm a little tired this week or it's a nice day. It'd be good to go out and fish. Uh, or why do we go and we let our minds wander? during the service, instead of really thinking about the words we're singing, instead of really asking, Lord, what is, what is, what is this message saying to me? You know, we, we shouldn't rate, and I do this myself. I usually go to church when I'm on vacation because I need feeding too, and I can't help it. I walk out and I just instantly rate it. Okay, yeah, that was okay here. This was all right. Why do we do that? Why do we not just go to God and say, this is me offering you worship, not this is me getting something from you? Why do we serve God only when we feel sufficiently guilty? You know, if you love somebody, you delight in serving them. Why, why, do we have to, why do we have to feel this sense of guilt? And okay, I better do something and get this guilt off my shoulders. And that's the same thing that Malachi, Malachi is saying to the Israelites 2,000 years ago. So let's move on. Chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So here's, in chapter 2, he addresses a couple of marriage-related issues that he had a problem with. And the first one was, Jewish men were marrying foreign women. And we need to be clear, this wasn't about a racial thing. It wasn't about racial purity because we know this because God blessed Rahab, God blessed Ruth, other women who came into Israel and married Israelite men. It wasn't a sin to marry someone who wasn't an Israelite. It was a sin to marry, as he says, the daughter of a foreign God. If she worships another God, you don't marry her. If he worships another God, you don't marry him. This is carried over into the New Testament when Paul says, do not be equally, un equally yoked to unbelievers. Because God knows. See, the problem is, and I love that, that image of yoking. Because you, you think about two animals. By the way, I've never walked behind a, a, a yoke of oxen or, or donkeys. I've, I've been in a tractor. But, but we can all understand. We, we can all understand the concept of two animals yoked together with this wood across their shoulders and they're together pulling a wagon or a plow. And, and if, if one of them is stronger than the other, or if one of them wants to pull to the right, it's going to hurt both of them. In the same way, when two people are headed in different directions, it's hard for them to form. Either one of two things is going to happen. If you, if you marry someone who doesn't believe in your God, you're either going to compromise your faith, faith in God, your relationship with God. You're going to compromise that in order to get along with that person. Or you're going to hurt your marriage because you're going to stick with God and he's not going or she's not going the direction you are. It always sounds good. It always, oh, well, I'm going to win him to Christ. And that happens maybe one time in a hundred. And I've seen it happen, and it's, it's a hallelujah moment, but there's so many other stories when it happens the other way. And so God is saying, don't do this. God does not want anything to steer his people away from devotion to him. He is a jealous God in the best sense of that word. 
chapter 2, verse 14. Now, the second marriage-related sin. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the second sin here is Jewish men divorcing their wives to marry someone younger. And I think that's why, the reason I say someone younger, he says the wife of your youth. You know, men and women in that era were married young. You got married as basically as teenagers. You finished raising each other in a sense. Now he's saying, and don't get up to your, your 20s, 30s, 40s, and then say, okay, I'm done with you. Now I'm going to find this other woman who's more attractive, who's, who's younger, who's uh, you know, someone new, a fresh face for me. Don't do that. Remember in that, and of course that kind of thing still goes on today, but even more prevalent back then when women didn't even have the right to divorce, but men did. When there were actual rabbis who were making arguments about, well, it's okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. She burns his toast. If she, uh, you know, yells at him one day, if she, he just doesn't like the way she looks one morning, it's, it's okay. God will forgive. After all, Moses gave them permission to write out a certificate of divorce. Remember, Jesus comes along and says, yes, but Moses did that because he knew you were heart of heart. He was trying to give protection to that woman. Uh, God's purpose was that let, let man not put asunder what God has joined together. Malachi says that, that marriage is a covenant. She is your wife by covenant. It's not a contract. In a contract, for instance, if, if I don't show up on Sunday morning, then y'all don't have to pay me. And it's the same way with where you work too. If you don't show up, they don't have to pay you. On the other hand, if they stop paying you, if I were you, I wouldn't keep on showing up to work. That's the way contracts work. But marriage is not meant to be a contract. It's meant to be a covenant. It's meant to be a three-way covenant where God and, and husband and wife are, are one and they hold one another close. And there's going to be times where, uh, you know, he struggles with depression or, or, or she is upset about, uh, about the, the kids and so doesn't pay as much attention to him as usual or he's out of work or, or she's angry about something and isn't talking to him. There's, there's going to be those moments but you stick with it. You don't walk out. It's, it's a covenant. It is an agreement for life. Now, a lot of you know that verse 16 in most Bibles says God hates divorce. The ESV, which is what I'm reading out of, doesn't translate it that way. And I've read several commentaries that say uh, that that's one way you can read the Hebrew, but it's not the most likely. Now, I'm not speaking as a Hebrew scholar. Full disclosure, I made a C in Hebrew and I was lucky to get that. But those who are say, yeah, you can kind of see God hates divorce in there, but more likely what it's saying is if a man hates and divorces his wife. Either way, either way, I think the important thing is if you leave your wife, if you're faithless to your wife, it's clothing yourself in violence. And I think that term is used deliberately because... I think men in that culture would say, well, you know, what I'm doing probably isn't the nicest thing, but it's not that bad either. It's not like I killed somebody. And God here is saying, no, you, you are. 
You're, you're killing a marriage. You're kill, you're, you're leave, especially in that time, you're leaving this woman with no recourse whatsoever. She's on her own. She's just, she's got a hope that her parents are still alive and take care of her or some man is, she's going to be fortunate enough to, to meet a Boaz or somebody like that who's going to come along and, and, and fall in love with her. But otherwise, you are doing a terrible thing to her. Um, now, let me talk about something else. And this is, this is necessary because divorce is so prevalent today. I hate divorce too. I see it happen all the time. I see it happen in the church. I see it outside the church. I see it happen to my friends. I see it happen to members of my family. And, and as long as I've been alive, people in churches have thought about, oh, divorce is so prevalent today. What do we do? And, and here's what I've come to believe. While I think most people who did this were well-intentioned, the idea that, well, if we just, if we just, if we emphasize how bad divorce is and what a sin it is, then that's, that'll convince people not to get divorced. And all that did is just make divorced people feel ostracized. Because you know what I've learned as a pastor and as a friend to people who've gone through this? Nobody I've ever met is happy to get divorced. I'm sure some of those people exist, but I've never met them. Everybody I've ever met who's been through a divorce will tell me, that's the worst experience in my life. I'd have rather been shot in the head. It was awful. And so for us to then come along and make them feel like they've failed in some way more than we've failed is the complete wrong way to do it. That's not a way to stop divorce. I, I think a better way is to, to build up marriage, to love, to encourage. Uh, why, not, why not have Christian couples who get involved with younger couples and say, hey, we're going to pray for you. Husband, you come over here with me. We're going to talk and you tell me what's going on. And wife, you come over here with me and, and we're going to talk and, and I'll tell you what I've learned. And if we had that kind of community in churches, this would happen much less often. Because I know, I know that when you're going through a difficult time in marriage, you feel all alone. You feel like you've got no, no recourse. You can't tell your parents. You can't tell anybody. Nobody gives you good advice. We've got to do a better job. We've got to do a better job. The answer is not to ostracize people who are going through divorce, have gone through divorce. The answer is to build up marriage as best we can. All right, that's my little sermonette. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Remember, what did I say Malachi's name meant? It means my messenger. Interesting, he says this near. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Anybody here familiar with Handel's Messiah? A piece of music? This is, this is one of the songs from it. I always hear it in my head when I get there. Uh, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the ultimate messenger he's talking about, obviously Malachi is the messenger of God, but he's pointing to another messenger, and that's John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Lord. That's what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. And... What does the Lord do when He comes? He purifies sinners. Now remember, 
there's, there's a couple of different parts to purifying sinners. There's justifying, and then there's sanctifying. In, in Baptist churches, we talk a lot about justifying and very little about sanctifying. Here's what I mean. What is the message you got growing up in a Baptist church? If you did grow up in a Baptist church or other evangelical church, it was walk the aisle, pray this prayer, and you will be saved. Do I believe that? Absolutely. If you mean it in your heart, you are saved. You are justified. You're justified before the Lord. The Lord looks on you and says, you are guilty of nothing. Come into my family. Come into my kingdom. I will never reject you. That's justification by faith through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it is a miracle. Does God leave you like that? No. Because then he goes to work on you. Then he goes to work sanctifying you, changing you into the image of Jesus. That doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen in an instant. It's the work of a lifetime. And is it easy? No. Does it hurt? Yes. Note the two uh, uh, metaphors that he uses here. He, he compares God to a refiner's fire. And you've heard, you've heard preachers talk about this before, I'm sure, about the idea of purifying metal like silver or gold. They have to melt it completely. Imagine how hot that fire has to be to melt metal. I've never, I've never been around a fire that hot. They melt the metal and then the impurities rise to the top and they skim off the top. They skim the impurities off the top. And I'm, I'm told, I don't know if this is something a preacher made up, but if so, it, he did a good job. I'm told that you know that the gold or the silver is pure when the refiner can look down and see his own face in the reflection. And that, isn't that a great picture of, okay, we know we're done when people can look at us and see nothing but Jesus. Are you there yet? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet at all. People still look at me and see me, but I'm on my way. I can see, I can see where impurities have been skimmed off. God's continuing to refine. The other, the other image is that of uh, Fuller's soap. What is Fuller's soap? It's lye, it's acid, basically. It burns. And from what I'm told, the way they cleaned garments with that kind of soap is they, they not only put it in that corrosive stuff, then they laid it out on rocks and beat it with sticks. Isn't that great? Yeah. So uh, that's the image. It's not an image of, uh, you know, we, we, we like to think of, here, here's our picture. Here's our perfect picture of spiritual growth. Let's go away to Colorado and let's study the Bible together. Let's get, a, let's get a good Bible teacher to teach us and we'll eat good food and we'll, we'll see the mountain views and, and enjoy the, the beautiful scenery and, and the great weather. And, and you know, we'll, we'll study the scriptures for an hour or two and then we'll go hiking or we'll, you know, we'll go play golf. Nothing wrong with that. That's a great vacation. But there's a lot more to spiritual growth. And some of spiritual growth is painful. I don't know how often... God intentionally leads us into pain and how often it is that God says, well, if you're going to go down that road, I might as well use it. We don't know. My point is either way, God knows what he's doing. It hurts, but it works if we'll trust him, if we'll keep with him. Sanctification is not for sissies is what I say. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. All right, chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the famous one. I guarantee you've heard this if you've been in a Baptist church. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So in Numbers 18 is where God originally commanded the Israelites to give a tenth of their flocks and their crops to the Levites to bring a tenth of what they made into the storehouse of the Lord. And Malachi's point is, you know, nobody's checking up on you. Nobody, there's no, uh, there was no Israeli, Israelite IRS that went and audited every household and said, okay, tell me how many, how many sheep you have, how many cattle you have, how many uh, you know, bushels of grain you harvested. Okay, let's see what you gave last year. All right, here's what you owe. That didn't happen. It was on the honor system. And Malachi knew that the Israelites were abusing that honor system. They were saying, well, who's going who's to call me on this? Nobody knows. Nobody knows how much I'm giving. Those Levites in Jerusalem don't know how much I make. I, I'll bring what I bring, and, and if they don't like it, well, you know, they, they can get it from somebody richer than me. And Malachi says, you're actually robbing God because you're, you're not giving him what he's due. Honestly, it's all his. We're fortunate that he lets us only give 10. So, but, but rather than simply criticize, he, he gives them a positive promise. He says, why not, why not test God's faithfulness in this? Why not see what he can do? If you, if you are faithful to trust him with a tenth, just see if he doesn't magnify your 90% and give you more than you ever could have had before. Why don't you just see if you don't have a greater blessing than you would have if you'd kept it all to yourself? Now, there are Christians... And some of them are people I highly respect who say that tithing is no longer required by Scripture because it's never mentioned in the New Testament. And you may be one of those. And if so, it's fine. I'm, I'm here to tell you whether you tithe or not is not going to determine whether you get into heaven or not. It's not even going to determine whether I like you or not. Well, that settles it. Yeah. So not that I know because I'm not privy to that information. But if you were to come up to me and say, Jeff, I don't, I don't give a dime. Okay. I, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm never, that's not my, uh, it's not my job to decide who gives what. We are in the New Testament always, uh, often called on to be generous. And we're also called to be sincere. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Don't pretend that you're generous when you're not. God hates that. I can just give you my testimony. Tithing has been a practice. I mean, fortunately, I married someone who was brought up with that. I was brought up with that. Although we were from very different backgrounds, we had that in common. So from the start of our marriage, we tithe. Um, there's only been one time in our lives when we didn't. And uh, we just got behind. It was one of those situations where we got behind and, and you know, you get to the point where you're thinking, oh, goodness, I'm never going to catch up. And so you're so worried about catching up, you just quit giving altogether. And we went for, uh, I forget how long it was when we weren't tithing. And you know what? In all the years we were together, all the years we've been together, and we've been together in times when we made nothing. And that was the only period of our lives we ever argued about money. Isn't that funny? And, and I made a lot more then than I did when we were first married. You know, and, and here we are back in those days living in a, a house that was infested with mice and the, the heat didn't work. But we didn't argue about money. We argued about other things, but not about money. And then here we are, you know, solidly middle class and we quit tithing. And all of a sudden we're having arguments about 
who spent what and who's going to pay that. I don't think that's a coincidence. God's promise is true. If you trust him with your material possessions, he will take care of you. Doesn't mean you're going to get rich, but it does mean you'll have enough. He will, he will provide. All right. Chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. He's talking about judgment day. He's talking about the day of the Lord, right? And how it's going to be a devastating day for people who don't know Christ, who don't know the Lord. But then look what he says next. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So judgment day is going to be a day of, of varied emotions. Some people are going to be devastated. They're going to be sorrowful. They're going to be terrified. And other people are going to be rejoicing. What is the difference between the two? Only this. Those who rejoice will know the Lord. That's it. Some of them are going to be church members. Some of them aren't. Some of them are going to be uh, wealthy. Others are going to be poor. Some of them are going to be people who've, who've had a sterling reputation all their lives. And other people are going to be guys who are on death row, right? It's going to be every kind of person. But what makes the difference is those who know the Lord and have trusted in Him will rejoice. And those who don't will be terrified. Now, verse 2 is my favorite verse in the book of Malachi. This is just, I, I'm, this is just a personal thing. And the reason why is twofold. First of all, it, it's a line from my favorite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in His wings. But more importantly, uh, my grandpa on my mom's side, and I'm going to tell a story about him Sunday morning, a very big influence in my life. He died uh, in 2010, and I did his funeral. One of the hard slash beautiful things about being a pastor is you get to do everybody's funeral when they pass away. Um, so I was, I was really working hard. I had worked really hard to get a, to say the right things about my grandpa. And the day of the funeral, my dad comes up to me, his son-in-law, and he says, you know, I know you've got everything planned already, but I think you ought to include Malachi 4 too. And I said, really? Why? And he goes, well, think about it leaping like calves from the stall. Grandpa was a farmer and rancher. He said, you've seen it. You've got the calves all pinned up and then you open that gate and they just go running and jumping and it's the happiest thing you've ever seen. It's, it's adorable. I mean, you still want to eat hamburgers, but it's, it's a beautiful, it's, it's just a sight of just pure joy. Calves leaping from the stall. And, and my dad said, so that's grandpa now. You know, he's in heaven. He's been set free because grandpa had Alzheimer's uh, for many, many years before he died. And now his mind's pure. Now his body's healthy. Now he's leaping from the stall. Okay, so I had to change everything. Had to include that. That was too good not to use. Um, and that's, that's the day of judgment. That's the day we see Christ face to face. All right, last, last two verses in the book. Chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree 
of utter destruction. As we saw last week on Sunday, John the Baptist quoted that verse about himself. Now, does that mean John was saying, I am literally Elijah reincarnated? No. I mean, that's not a script. Reincarnation is not a scriptural concept. That comes from Eastern religions. And by the way, John 1.21, John was explicitly asked, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. So no, that's not what he meant. But as Gabriel said, when he came to Zechariah and Elizabeth to announce John's birth, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to remind you of Elijah. He even dressed like him. He even lived out in the wilderness like him. He had a, he had a preaching style that was like that of Elijah. Jesus in Matthew 17, 12 through 13, references this also. He says, you know, everybody thinks Elijah is going to come before the Messiah gets here. Well, Elijah has already come and you've done to him what you wanted. In other words, they've put him to death as they did John the Baptist. What is Malachi actually saying? Elijah, Malachi is saying, Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord to give you all a chance to repent and get ready. That's what I'm doing right now. This is not the day of the Lord, but I am, I am a gift from God. I am a, a wake-up call that says, be ready. Repent now before it's too late. And if there was ever a generation that needed a message of repent, wake up, get right with God, isn't it our generation? Isn't it our time? Isn't that the message that our culture needs to hear? So how do we lead our generation to repentance? Because I think many of you have seen that just standing up and railing against their sins doesn't work. They don't accept it from us for various reasons. I, I think the start it has to start with repentance in us. Revival begins in the people of God. So examine your hearts. Ask God to show you, where do I need to repent? Take the log out of your eye, right? So you can see to take the speck out of that of your neighbor. And that's where renewal in our culture will begin. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for who you are and for your blessings, your faithfulness, Lord, your abundant faithfulness and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would examine our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Wake us up to the ways in which we have strayed from you, not just us, but every person who calls themselves by your name in this country. Lord, it is obvious that your church is not functioning the way that it should. And I pray for renewal in the American church. We pray that it would happen in this generation, that people would turn around and see something we haven't seen before, a church that stands boldly and humbly and graciously for you. And I pray that we would see it in our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.